yesterday, I mean, this is history, Rabbi Bly, was today's 109, which means yesterday was 108 and it was mislabeled. The, um, we're actually really one feeds right into the next uh, in terms of our topics. We, um, those of you who weren't here, we, um, the Jewish community, the ancient Jewish community of Hebron was massacred. Um, of the 180 Jews who were murdered during the riots of Tarpat of 1929, 67 of them were in Hebron, 24 of whom were students at the Knesset base Israel that left Hebron, obviously, the yeshiva was destroyed, and um, relocated in Yerushalayim. Um, today actually has two branches. One is kind of defunct. The other one is in Givat Mordechai, very, one of the stronger yeshivas in all of the world, uh, called Hebron. So it started originally, what originally started in Slabodka as Knesset based Israel, and then moved to Hebron, um, eventually would be known as Hebron. Say it again, Ilan. Givat Mordechai, it's also, there was a branch, but it's, I think it's closed down right now. It's just um, down the street, uh, Shimon Tzadik turns into Yechezkel, uh, and then um, off a, a little bit to the right, there's an old campus that up until recently was functioning as one of the, one of the branches. But it's not in Hebron. What's that? It's not in Hebron. It's not in Hebron. It was, it was understood, it was symbolic because Hebron was evacuated. Um, with one exception, there was like a, somebody who sold milk somehow persisted there into the 1930s, but he doesn't really count. The Jewish community certainly didn't exist in Hebron um, until the late 60s, right, which is the next chapter. The settler community. And that's part of the story I tell when I guide Hebron. When I guide Hebron. The, um, um, but okay. I'm happy and willing to, okay. it, it, I, and I think something's going to happen. I think it might be a last-minute thing. Uh, not that that's my preference and way of working things, but I have to work as part of a team and have to do things that are conducive, you know, that, you know, that kind of fit with everybody else. So I will simply um, be flexible and try to accommodate if there's a need. But I, I'd, I'd like to do something um, with you guys. The um, that was the backdrop to the next topic for today, which is by 1929, um, there was still no major organized Jewish military. And the Jews, many of the Jews in Eretz Israel, now perceived a great need. The British certainly were not going to um, help us, as has been demonstrated on numerous occasions, and most flagrantly in 1929, when they simply stood back and let them riot and actually told them, go to your homes so you can be sitting ducks while they murder you in your, in your homes. Um, so let's go back and trace the origins of the modern-day Jewish um, self-defense <coughs> uh, self organization. The initial, the first of the modern era organization started in 1907 in the middle of the second Aliyah. They named themselves with, I think, with unintentional irony, this is, I picked up on this, after Shimon Bar Giora, who was one of the leaders of the groups that rebelled against the Romans during the Merid Hagadol, you remember the story? Broke out in Caesarea in 66 of the Common Era, and they broke out, and he's one of the guys who wouldn't listen to the Gedolim. Uh, remember the Gedolim were saying, we don't fight the Romans, let's just, we win by surviving one of our perennial themes, and uh, we should, we should, you know, we're gonna start up with them, we'll never hear the end of it, they'll destroy us, and indeed, of course, the Gedolim were, light, were, were right, and Bargiora uh, fell. 
Anyway, the modern day group would name themselves after Bar Giora, um, and they too were not exactly listening to any Gedolim, certainly uh, a division of the secular socialist um, Zionist movement. So, um, well, can you blame that? I mean, like, as of now, Israel is, uh, is, is, for example, like, today surviving, right? If we didn't win, if we didn't try to win and we just tried to survive, we wouldn't have this. So Daniel says a familiar idea that if we didn't have a military, we wouldn't have Israel. One of those statements that's speculative. We will never know one way or the other if that's true. But you're probably rationally right. The question is, if we wouldn't win, if we didn't um, do a veras, would we need a military? See, the Torah, the Torah indicates coming back to something much more fundamental that. Um, Bad things happen to Jews when we, um, especially coming back to his holy land, which the Torah says in innumerable places is sensitive, has a has like a like a person with a um, a delicate uh, digestive tract, um, very easily regurgitates um, regurgitates sins, um, and literally the, the the metaphor, the very pungent metaphor in the Torah is vomit. It vomits out its inhabitants. I always thought, it, I mean, making just a logical connection, how stunning it was that one of the, let's say, more symbolic attacks in the modern era is the suicide bomber who goes in the middle of a um, civilian area on a bus, in a mall, or anywhere where he can try to kill as many people as possible. The immediate after effect of a suicide bombing, has anybody ever seen this? No. Ever seen them? We've seen pictures maybe? Okay. It looks actually like regurgitation. There are body parts strewn everywhere. It really does have that look as if, it, as it were, the land, consistent with the promises of the Torah, the land is regurgitating its inhabitants. But if you put it that way, too, then even if you didn't do a virus, part of being part of the Jewish nation is the fact that you are going to be hated and targeted by every other nation. Well, that's again part of the Klala, part of what the promise of the Torah is when we're doing a virus. However, something that has not been tested, so we can't really prove this one on a rational plane, but, um, but the Torah asserts to itself unequivocally that the, the Torah says, if you don't do a veris, quite the contrary, if you are tzaddikim, and you learn the Torah and keep my mitzvahs, Hashem promises that things will be so great as we're about to read in the Haftarah and Shabbos Agadol in a couple of weeks that we're going to um, we're going to say Ad Bli Dai. He's going to shower down bracha till the point that we say enough bracha already, too much goodness, too much uh, plenty, and and um, and all of the prophetic promises of, will come true, including famously Lo Vechitetu Harvo Samli Itim. They will crush their swords and turn them into plowshares. I'm not advocating. I'm not advocating an irrational pacifist stance in the contemporary real politics sense. Don't get me wrong. I'm not naive. I'm only pointing out that um, if you're talking in big terms, if you take a step back, a military is not necessary. Chuva is what's really necessary. The military is what's necessary in our highly bidiyevid reality as we find ourselves today. So that's how they find themselves then, and I'm just commenting on the choice of names, Bar Gior, of all people, who symbolizes, at least in Jewish tradition, somebody who doesn't listen to the Gdolim, a name chosen by people who, what, what do you know, don't listen to rabbis. Um, that's all, just a connection. Isn't there a Moshe There is. Outside of Yerushalayim, on the way, let's say, not far from Beitar, right, in the, in the western Jerusalem mountains. Beautiful area, a lot of great hikes around there. 
Uh, I like to, across the street there is a nice particular path I go frequently on called Nachal Katlav. Very pretty over there. Um, Arab guards beforehand were hired to protect Jews. When, you know, now they have like a number of, they have it there in the cities and they're in a number of Moshevot, especially in the Moshevot, they're kind of open and exposed. So they, they hired Arab guards, but that was kind of limited since the Arab guards then studied the Jewish behavior and then told his cousins what the Jews did and how they could, uh, you know, infiltrate the settlements and be able to attack them while the guard was conveniently sleeping and not watching for his cousin's attack. So they saw the limited need, uh, the limited use of an Arab guard, and they, they, in 1907 at least, they started having a Jewish guard. Um, the new militia already, and if you know anything about Israeli culture, and some of you really do, from the get-go started out not just to have practical, uh, you know, uh, technical use, but it took on a quasi-religious, mystical quality from the from the very beginning. When I and I'll describe, they started having a whole series of ritualized oaths that you had to take oaths of secrecy for everybody who's a member of Bargiora. There were all kinds of self-imposed acts of discipline far beyond what an ordinary army might call for. Um, they certainly called for selfless service to a higher, greater cause. Meaning, there was a whole religiosity associated with the army, a total devotion to the cause. And one finds today, one of my critiques or my analyses of the secular Israeli culture, the army is part of their secular religion uh, with a series of its own rituals and sac sacrosanct uh, ideas. And if you um, don't stand on Yom HaZikaron, the, the, the day of, of, of uh, the fallen soldiers, um, which is again part of the secular ritual. If you don't, um, if you if you're not, if you don't, let's say, go and visit the. I don't know if you're aware of this. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of military um, um, andartas, monuments that dot the landscape all over Israel because of the many battles that have had been fought, the many terrorist attacks that have taken place. They will take it personally. They'll take it as a, as a sign of disrespect, almost like a religious uh, intolerance issue. Um, in the tour guide training course, there is a huge emphasis on, in the modern era, on knowledge of, I mean, to a point of obsession, of the different wars and the battles and the names of the soldiers uh, to the point that it, it, it puts, let's say you, you think about Americans who are obsessed with nonsensical things, like some people know Oscar winners or others know sports statistics or things like that. It's on par with that. They know things that... You could say, okay, you need to study the war and the strategies so you can, you could become more militarily savvy in the future and understand how the world works. But I think what the obsession with the military goes far deeper than that. I'm, I'm calling it quasi-religious, uh, secular religion. Um, the, among other things, um, it was a socialist army. It wasn't an army yet, obviously. It was just a small, uh, a, a small core of fighters. Um, all decisions had to be ratified by unanimous vote which soon wore its welcome out. Meaning you can't have an army like that. This is not gonna work, you know. What do you guys think, Private Private Schwartz? What do you, 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 do you agree with your commander? No, an army needs uh, a hierarchy and it needs the command from on high from somebody with a little bit more experience than Private Schwartz. But at least at first, the whole socialist 
you know, you can picture the, the, the commune, the kibbutz commune, right? That was, that was uh, where, where they were coming from. Um, so that was their spirit. Um, two years later, they reorganized. There were a lot of problems with, with Bar Giora, and the new group was now called Hashomer. Hashomer, there are museums dedicated to these, uh, to the two, all kinds of museums um, you know, around Israel about the different phases of the army. Uh, there's the Palmach Museum, very famous, very, uh, very famous in, in Ramat Gan. There is the, uh, what's his name, what's his name? On, on Rothschild Street in Tel Aviv, the Gollum Museum. It's a whole museum of the um, Haganah. There's, there's the Etzel Museum right north of Jaffa. There's the Lefi Museum. There's, the Lefie museum. there's everything's a museum. And again, with, with down to, I mean, everything is saved and preserved. And, and, and people who are the aficionados, and there are a lot of people like that in this country, who really, it's like their hobby or their, you know, their, 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 their uh, distraction is uh, they, they just know all about this. They eat it up. Um, fine. I mean, on the other side, you can understand where it's coming from partly because here's something that you're literally giving your life for the cause. And if you're not, maybe your second cousin died or you know somebody's, uh, you know, your, your, your sister's uh, first husband or all kinds of people. Um, when I guide Mount Herzl, when I guide Mount Herzl, it's not uncommon when you to, to go through the cemetery. It's a military cemetery, very tastefully done, very beautiful. Has anybody been there? Hart, Mount Herzl, right behind, right the other side of Yad Vashem. Very beautifully done cemetery. I know that sounds like an oxymoron. It really isn't. Uh, the Jews can do things very tastefully, and whereas the <coughs> the non-Jews tend to associate cemeteries with ghouls and goblins, so we uh, our mechabed are, de are dead, and we try to do things in a nice way. <coughs> If you go to like the, the bridge. Hold on, I know I know I left an opening, but I, let me just let me just finish the thought, <laughs> and then you're on and on. Um, um, it's not uncommon to go around Har Herzl where you'll suddenly see by a grave a youngish woman there visiting, and clearly and obviously she's a young widow, sometimes with small children. You know, it's also a very real thing for the Israelis who lose people in battle um, in the War of Independence. We're going to see that out of the 600,000 Jews who lived in Palestine at the time. 6,000, 1% died. Uh, if that means anything to you, if you study wars, that's immense, that's huge. That means you really knew a lot of people who died. That's the nature of the war, so you can understand why you take on clearly an emotional, but almost spiritual kind of, um, kind of a mystique in the Israeli culture. Now go. Um, one thing I think is cool is if you go to like Arlington or in America, or then if you go to like the British War Cemetery up on Hearts. Hearts of there, yeah. Uh, it's very plain, like every grave is the same, and they don't plants anywhere. And I think right. Our hearts are their plants, and it's more like. Um, it's individualized. Yeah. That's right. That's, I mean, there's also a certain conformity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Certain, certain, certain sameness, but, but, but you're right, 100%. And themes, yeah. um, sometimes there are group graves where they right, couldn't right, identify yeah. bodies, like the sunken submarines. We're about to tell some of these stories actually um, uh, now. Um, again, in 1909, the, the Bar Gior becomes Hashomer, and they try to broaden their scope. They have an ambitious job to do. They certainly can't do all of it, but they would like to provide organized defense for all the Jewish communities in Palestine. At this point, there are about, about um, getting up to 25 or so new Moshevot. That's not even counting the old um, cities and villages where Jews had been living for centuries. Um, the mystique was, he couldn't get around it. They rode horseback. 
They often dressed like Bedouin and Druze. They adapted the customs of Bedouin and Druze. There's a great old picture I should have brought in of Shimon Peres, the uh, longtime politician and recently president, now a retired uh, um, hack, I mean, um, old uh, retired politician in, in Israel. Um, and um, they have an old picture of him, uh, Lauren Bacall's cousin, actually, um, uh, Shimon Persky, who became Paris. Um, and he looked like a Bedouin in his whole getup, the whole getup. Was, yeah, yeah, that was the way they did it. And you can imagine, you know, picture the, you know, picture little, little Shimmy Persky, you know, little Shimmy Persky. We are all just terrible. These poor listeners have to listen to us all coughing. Uh, poor Shimmy, little Shimmy Persky coming out from Europe, coming to the great far Middle East, right, and coming and then putting on these romanticized clothes of his costume and going to fight for the Jewish people. Yeah, there's a clear glamour in this, in this whole enterprise. They, um, Americans, Americans, Americans just wanted to join the Israeli army. Kinda. There's definitely a mystique, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, it definitely draws people, no question. Right, no, Israelis have to do it, but Americans are drawn to it, especially. No, I mean, like, I'm Jewish, so I have to protect my nation. So right, like, no question, no question. There's an idealism involved with it, too, that I'm, I'm a big cynical about. There's no, all of it is, pa- is packed together. I mean, obviously, you hear my perspective. I make no, I make no secret about, about my, my biases. Um, I, I try to present things in a complex light. I, um, I mean, since we're talking about the military, I would say from a religious perspective, every Jew who falls defending Jews trying to live in Eretz Kodesh is a kadosh. I understand that. That's that's and, and, and it's somebody to be honored and revered like we take care of all Jews, whether they're religious or not. We do have an innate Ahavas Yisrael that's supposed to define us as Jews. You don't have to do that though, knowing that you won't be able to learn as well in the army. Do what? I'm saying I, I can... All I'm saying is saying in theory, in, you know, I, I don't look cynically, certainly not at soldiers who fall there, they're, they're kadoshim. And, and, and I can understand, I see their good intentions and the, and the idealism behind certain soldiers, not every soldier, but a lot of them are definitely, especially in the early days, these people were, were, were certainly, you know, they, they wanted to create a Jewish homeland and try to protect Jews everywhere in the world. There's, you know, there's something beautiful about that. Obviously, the meta theme here, this is a course on Jewish history and, and uh, from a Torah perspective, the fact that they did this without Torah, the Torah itself tells us, invites a certain amount of disaster and ongoing problems and strife. And far from solving the Jewish uh, security problems, often what one finds is these early militias um, multiply the problems and create greater determination on the side of the Arabs to fight the Jews and to kill the Jews. And it's one of these arguments, just like I rejected your argument before, that it's all speculative and who's to say what would have been. And so the following statement, I wouldn't defend in an argument, but you could hear the idea that if there had never been a Jewish military group, there may never never have been an uprising of Arabs that attacked us violently (laughs) in the same way. Because you'll hear how antagonistic this new this, this Hashomer and then later the Haganah and all of the Israeli fighting corps would be in, in, in inspiring the wrath, the vicious hatred of the Muslim world in general till today. Muslims, remember, did not particularly despise the Jews until the modern time. A lot of the current obsession with the Jewish state has to do with the development of a Jewish military. So the Jewish military is simultaneously there. This irony that I quoted in Rob Feldman's book I'm extending here, the Jewish military simultaneously serves to defend the Jews living in Palestine and also to cause a greater need for having a military by, by antagonizing our enemies. 
And I don't know how you stop that, except I do. The Torah tells us make tshuva, and that's what we come full circle constantly. Let's continue our, our, our narrative. The um, Interesting, one of their icons, and this is just unfathomable from our perspective, we're trying to look at all of history, they obviously picked and chose, they forgot the fact that um, we had some bad enemies in the past, and some of their um, role models were Cossacks. They saw themselves as modern-day Cossacks roaming the countryside, defending their own, as it were. Do you remember what the Cossacks did to us in Tachvetat? Bogdel Shmelnitsky, the, 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 um, the, the, that generation's Holocaust in 16, from 1648, 1649, and on to the 1650s. And, and these people saw them as role models on some level. Um, yeah. In 1920, one of the riots, one of the causes, of course, the riots that we talked about yesterday, uh, in 1920, 1921, was this new military group. The Arabs saw that as obviously antagonistic and threatening, and we're not going to stand for it, so we're going to rise up, um, and we're going to have a bloody rebellion against it. Um, so by 1920, with the, you know, one bad deed breeds another, so from 1920 already, the Hashomer understood that they were no longer adequate for the rising needs, defense needs of the Jews, so they went broader, and they reorganized, and the new group was now called the Haganah, and that's a more familiar name to most of us, um, and the idea, of course, was to cope with the many defense problems all around Palestine, and, of course, the unwillingness, the evident unwillingness of the British to do anything to help the Jews. And finally now, to bring this up to where we're holding in 1929, finally, um, the Haganah, after the attacks in the summer, galvanized support for even greater growth, uh, and they established a um, fairly capable underground army. Underground because it was not technically legal. Uh, the British begrudgingly acknowledged it, but they didn't, they, they, you, and we're going to see, they're going to run afoul of the British law and the British way of doing things. They were an underground army. Um, that was trained, and um, I, I've mentioned before that one of the reasons um, why the, the, uh, the Zionists were able to suddenly put a state on the map in '48 was that so much had been planned and organized and, and rehearsed so, so um, rigorously beforehand. By 1929 already, they'd been preparing for this now for decades, and they were quite, uh, quite adept um, at doing what they were doing. The, um, the Zionist political wing asserts its political control over the new, over this new defense force. Um, the general attitude from the 19, late 1920s into the 1930s was a policy called Havlaga. And I give you the word because it's an important one. It's still relevant till today. It's a policy of restraint. We have a force. It's there to be used in case of need, but we do not go on the offensive. And quite the contrary, we do not want to, uh, you know, in theory, arouse the uh, ire of our superiors, of the British, or of the world opinion. Um, they don't want to tip into delicate balance. They instructed fighters, for example, to defend and not counterattack. Uh, I don't know if you know about the history of the army or what goes on in the army, but that remains a dynamic where soldiers are sometimes in a lose-lose situation. I mean, unique in the world where they have to go in sometimes to hostile Arab areas, but they can't shoot. And they can't do this, and they can't do that, and they can't do a number of things. So what can they do? And they put their lives on the line so as to exercising this havlaga, this constant restraint. It's a dynamic now, and clearly it will be a source of great internal 
um, friction because many of the Jews say, what is this nonsense? It's totally ineffective. If we're going to already have a military, let's fight. And this is, by the way, what you just saw in the elections. This was one of the subtexts of the elections. The labor, the liberal party, which was the dominant party in the early years of the state, were advocates of General Havlagad. They are the ideological descendants of the Haganah. The Likud uprising in 1977, the turnaround with Likud, Likud represented the extreme, what's sometimes called the terrorist faction of the early days, and we're about to see the breakaway, the, 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 um, the, Le the Lechi, the Etzel, um, as they broke away, they're the ones who said, no, no, let's fight, for real. And this will be an emerging issue um, because the right-wingers, so the, the parent, sometimes called the terrorists, uh, they say if you exercise restraints with the Arabs, ironically, you'll be showing weakness. And in the Arab culture, weakness is perceived as an invitation for their own aggression. What you need to do with Arabs is to be stronger and firm and, if necessary, violent, and they will begrudgingly accept you was this new right-wing voice. It wasn't so new. It was uh, Vladimir Jabotinsky, who we're going to hear about, and others. But that was, that was the, um, the right-wing. Um, and the Jews from the get-go of this army had strong, basic policy disagreements. How do you run a Jewish army? Do you do so with constant restraint, or do you do so by going, going, um, going full out and, and, uh, and fighting? And in 1931, officially, the Irgun Tzfa'i Le'umi, abbreviated to Etzel, we call them often in English just the Irgun, that's, the, that's Menachem Begin. When I talked about the Likud uprising in 1977, Menachem Begin was one of the original, he, after Jabotinsky, he would be the leader of the Irgun, or he'll, we'll hear more about him too. Um, they broke away from the Haganah formally, um, and with that breakaway in 1931, you already see the first antecedent to the Likud versus, well, what's historically been called labor today, they're called Ha-Machaneh um, Ha-Tzioni, the Zionist camp, but, um, okay. Um, the Irgun was responsible, they arranged, and they initiated a sequence of bombings of, of, in the Arab Shuk. One of their policies, we're going to go, they indiscriminately come and kill civilians, we'll go and kill civilians too, was their policy. Um, clearly, I'm not a fan of either the Haganah or the Irgun. Um, but this is what they went about doing. Um, of course, the Haganah were appalled, shocked, still. You know, you know, you don't make a ruckus. You don't get the British against us. Um, they also were condemned by many in the, let's say, the established yeshuv and the, certainly in the, in, the, in, the, in the central Zionist command. Um, but the Irgun was still not extreme enough for some people's liking. And one of their members was a fellow by the name of Avram Stern, or Yair Stern, who's lionized today. Uh, the prime minister, the re-elected prime minister, named his son for this guy, uh, Yair. His son was named for Yair Stern, who broke away from the Irgun to, to form what was called the Lochmei Cherut Yisrael, called Lechi, or the Stern Gang. Yitzhak Shamir was a member of them. He became a prime minister sometime later. Uh, what was one of the members of the Stern Games? We're originally in one of these. Usually, right, in Israel, it's all about the military. It's all about fighting. That's how you got in power. Interesting, until recently. Uh, in, in recent, um, if, you look, if you study the Knesset list, just these last couple of elections, you find a disproportionate number of journalists because Israel's going the way of the modern world. It's becoming more of a media circus and more of a celebrity culture, and celebrities get into power, and, and less and less 
the military people become become uh, politicians or, or successful politicians, the military is somewhat receding in this country. Anyway, um, I keep making this contemporary, but let's stay back in the 1930s. Um, Stern broke away and formed the Lehi, Lochmei Chirut Yisrael. Um, in 1939, the disagreement was Irgun agreed to help the British against the Nazis. At the outbreak of World War II in 1939, the Irgun sort of complied with the Haganah that they're going to be the good boys and not uh, ruffle any feathers of the British. And Stern felt, no way, we, we still continue our policy of aggression. And so he broke away. Um, some of the infamous events associated with these groups, the... Um, We'll hear about the white paper. Stern was particularly, he felt that the white paper, which I'll describe in greater detail later on, which was a, a harsh decree of the, of the British mandate, um, he felt that that made the, um, as the way he saw it, the enemy of my enemy is still my enemy. And even though the British were fighting the Nazis, they were both evil, and both of them we should fight, <laughs> was, his, was, his, was his feeling. 1944, I'm jumping a little bit around, but intentionally to give you a picture of, of these different groups. The Lehi was responsible for the assassination of the British Minister of State for the Middle East, a fellow by the name of Lord Moyne. Um, the Haganah was so appalled that they, they allied with the British to go after and against the Irgun and the Lehi. So there was a civil war on some level. We're going to see with the story of the Altadina how that would eventually manifest. But in these early days, um, the, the, the infighting was immense, and here the Jewish people are trying to get off the ground and form their own Jewish state. They can't even learn to cooperate, secular versus secular. The various fighting forces have such different policies that they, um, the Haganah actually helped to kidnap, interrogate, and even deport members of the Irgun. Um, or the, uh, right? And actually, they didn't go after the Lehi, they went after the Irgun. Um, yeah. The three groups would, would agree in 1945 to sort of cooperate. They sort of, for the common cause of having a state, they finally didn't work out their differences, but they agreed to disagree and, and, and to try to work together on some level for the greater idea of the Jewish, the Jews having independence. I'm going to jump to this now anyway. I'm talking about the pending civil war. Here's, here's an incident that um, is significant and really reflects this. We're talking about Jewish military and how ugly military life is and how unresolved so many of these differences are, and they really pertain till today, May 28, 1948. We're talking about the heart of the, what they call the War of Independence. It's only two weeks after the Declaration of Independence, what they call today Yom HaTzma'ut. Um, Ben-Gurion disbanded the Haganah and forms officially Tzahal. Okay. Tzahal, which is the Israel uh, Tzva'i, Haganah Le'umi, the, the official national defense force of Israel. Um, and simultaneously, this is very crafty on his part, outlawed any other military. De facto, Irgun and Lehi were, were illegal. Um, the Irgun didn't agree. Okay? That was two weeks after the state, and they were unreconciled. And um, a few days later, at Kfar Vidkin, which is just on the north is, uh, Tel Aviv beach, um, Irgun imported arms, significant amount of arms, on a ship called the Altalina. I misquoted the name before. The Altalina, which was named for uh, Vladimir Jabotinsky's um, pen name. He was an author, and they called it after his pen name, the Altalina. And um, they were bringing their ship into port, into Kvarvitkin, to restock 
their needs during the intense out, uh, outbreak, the intense fighting of the War of Independence. And Ben Gurion says, "No, the ship will not land." And the Irgun under Begin, Menachem Begin, said, "Yes, it will." Yeah, that's the famous incident. They fired. Ben Gurion ordered the shelling of the ship. It did sink. Sixteen Irgun members would die um, on the ship in the fighting on the land. Um, Actually, the ship would no. Sixteen Irgun members would, would die on the ship. Six other members were die, would die fighting on the land. Um, in the end, to his credit, I do this when I guide the Begin Museum. To his credit, Begin says, "We will not return fire. We're not going to return fire. We're not going to allow this to go to escalate and to get into an all-out civil war. We have plenty of problems as is waging the war that we're waging, and the civil war was narrowly averted." The, um, the new Jewish militia, what we call Sahal till today, uh, functioned and continues to function, um, not turning to Hashem, not asking Shilas of Gdoli, not, not, not functioning like we would imagine a Jewish army would. So Daniel getting back to our debate, do we need an army, do not need an army? These are all hypothetical, right, subjective kinds of questions. But the fact that they have no siyat deshmaya, the fact that they don't, you know, they, they, don't, they don't try that, when you're fighting a war, you don't know anything. And you could have the most brilliant strategists, and you could have the greatest trained army, but if you have no siyat deshmaya, you have nothing. That's, a, that's a, just a, a fact that's often forgotten. The bravado of the of the Israeli and the Israeli soldier, we often forget that they are that they are so many proverbial dogs chasing their tails. Yes. Wasn't that a miracle? The Six Day War. That's not uh, no, according to their account, that was their doing. No, 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 they didn't need a shem for that. I, I, I You're not that, talking about that aspect. I'm not talking about their account. Okay, I'm not misleading. Because you no, it's true. They don't. They're not necessarily so that's subscribing. Not, and when they subscribe, not subscribe. Now, the fact that we have Siat Dishmaya as Klal Yisrael doesn't mean the army does. We don't know how to interpret these events exactly, but the fact that you have miracles, not just the Six Day War, go back to the War of Independence, Tashach as well. Uh, you know, there definitely are Siat Dishmaya, but but um, hard to hard to see necessarily that that's a direct result of the army that the Kaddish Baruch was rewarding the army for their maybe he's rewarding us maybe he wants to serve like Enough, 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 enough. I'm only saying that, that an army that's institutionally Mechal Shabbos and, and going against Hashem's will aren't necessarily uh, playing their cards right and trying to trying to work on this Yad angle yeah uh, we didn't talk about the bombing of the King David we're just skipping uh, yeah, I made a good over survey. That's a big deal, right? They bombed the King David, and they said they didn't really know that it was going to cause so many casualties. They warned the British. It was the British headquarters at the time. Actually, I'm going to get back to it. When I talk about Begin, we'll talk about it briefly. It was which It was Irgun. It was Irgun. It was under Menachem Begin's command at the time. Oh, it's in my notes now. I'm going to address what Ruth Pitham just brought up. The army usually takes credit for its greatest successes, of course, the Independence War, the Six-Day War. Um, but if you really study the histories of wars, they've had a lot more uh, misses than they've had hits. Um, the Nisim clearly reflect that no army could have done this. They studied this in, the, in, in military right, schools around the world. West Point, not just West Point, around the world they study, but West Point is famous. Uh, and there's no um, rational explanation for the victory of the Six-Day War. Um, right. 
And as I said, it's it's deeply entrenched in Israeli culture. The whole army, every everything to do with the army and all of its um, all of its uh, accompanying um, culture that, that comes along with it, down to the military fatigues. But um, the other aspect in Israeli life is the any military is a big machine that has an unpleasant, ugly mission to accomplish, and it creates an inherent Violence. I'm not saying the violence in Israeli culture is only due to the deep influence of the army culture, but it's certainly connected. You can also argue that just the Middle East as a culture is extremely violent. Uh, the Arab culture as such is, is one that's, that's, that relies on violence on a regular basis, independent of the Jews. Um, and that, that certainly has an influence here. But the instance, let's say, of... Um, in, um, family abuse, wife abuse in Israeli homes, uh, and the violence in the streets, the random acts of violence, the aggression on the road, the way people drive their cars, seem to all overlap. All of this is coming from, uh, from a common center. Um, it would take an inevitable moral toll on the uh, secular population who would be increasingly rootless, um, and we'll see what it will do to the emerging state. Okay, now indeed I'm changing gears, and um, if you could believe it, uh, we're not done, we're not done, but I am going to talk about a little bit of what's going on in the late 1920s and already in the 1930s um, over in Europe. And as we know, doom is awaiting us in Europe, and there are, there are some telltale signs that we, with obviously perfect historical hindsight, can detect. Uh, not everybody was, as, um, was aware back in the day. We know already, beginning in the early 1920s, the United States, which had already grown, we said, to 4.5 million Jews, um, had started to put strong quotas, restricting the number of Jews who would enter, enter the country. We know that most of what they call the so-called free world would follow very soon after that. We've already seen Herbert Samuel, uh, the, the original <laughs> high commissioner, put a strong quota on how many Jews could come to Palestine. Um, all of which reaches a crescendo in a certain event. Sometimes I focus on certain stories, certain events, because they reflect, uh, they, 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 they tell you um, much more than just their own story. They reflect the whole big picture in these days. Um, and that, the story I want to tell you is of the conference in Evian, Evian, in France, that took place in July of 1938. Yes, yes, but no connection with the water, although I'm sure the people attending the conference did drink the water. Um, anybody familiar with this episode? Because it's one of those that I claim is, uh, is, is utterly necessary. If you want to understand what's going on in the world at this time, it paints the picture. <laughs> President Roosevelt's FDR of America uh, proclaims the conference. It's a rising crisis. The Nazi power is already clearly established and installed, and their plans are no secret. And the, what's going to be now the perennial Jewish problem, that euphemism, the Jewish problem now uh, has, reached, has reached ahead. Uh, and so he convenes this conference in July of 1938. What are we going to do with the um, rising problem of Jewish refugees? 32 countries from around the world attended. 39 private organizations were represented. Many Jews looked expectantly for the outcome of the goodwill, especially as it was spearheaded by a perceived friend or at least somebody relatively sympathetic to the Jewish plight, uh, FDR himself, who was not a 
think relative to most non-Jews, was not an anti-Semite per se. Um, have to be careful of counting on non-Jews to help us out. Hitler, too, watched very, very carefully everything that happened in the Evian Conference. He said um, he would use, I mean, you can tell based on the way I'm setting it up, um, it did not end well. And Hitler would use the outcome of the Evian Conference to prove, um, you see, the rest of the world doesn't want them either. They just gave me a gushpanka, a seal of, a stamp of approval for what I'm about to do. Nobody wants the Jews. Um, the leaders of the conference, both the United States and the British, came out. Their conclusion was a, ref a continued refusal to take large numbers of Jews. All, they did take some, but relative to the demands, the needs, it was shocking, appalling. Most of the other countries followed suit. The general explanation that was offered was, I'm going to quote, the emigration of people in large numbers has become so great that it makes racial and religious problems increase. We can't have too many Jews, I'm paraphrasing, because it's going to, going to create racial problems in the streets of Detroit and New Orleans. We can't have that in America. Uh, some were even more... Uh, unembarrassed, unapologetic. In Australia, the delegate was a fellow by the name of T.W. White. He said, um, we have no real racial problem with the Jews and we're not desirous of importing one. And Australia took virtually nobody. In Canada, the foreign minister said, how many Jews can Canada take? His response, none is too many. Um, this is before PC hit the world, where this would not have been intolerable. This Wait, is there, were, there were Jews in Canada. There were already, so and that was too many as far as the Canadians were concerned. None is too many. But there wasn't like anti-Semitism in Canada, was there? Yes, uh, sure there was. It was nascent, because in America you had to do it differently somehow, but it was there unmistakably. Listen, if a public figure could say unembarrassedly in a press statement, none is too many, and not be concerned about repercussions, apparently the attitudes were quite yeah, open. That's so weird though. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. considering like you didn't hear, like they weren't like, being here violent attacks and... No, it doesn't have to be manifest right. violent attack. Just the a refusal to take right. in refugees already gives their cards away. Canada actually was the worst. They were the most restrictive of all the Western countries. They um, accepted a total of 5,000 Jewish refugees, which is obscene given the numbers that we now know. 5,000, and their capacity was was immense. Um, 5,000 out of those who managed to escape were 800,000, right? That's not even telling. If they opened their doors to more, how many more of the millions could have been saved? Um, the United States eventually, initially they didn't, have, they didn't take many more. Uh, eventually they would take, and we'll see why, they took up to 200,000, but also it's obscene. 200,000 out of an American can certainly absorb many more, uh, and we'll see what actually moved the Americans to, to open their doors a little bit more, even after Evian. Um, the only country, and I don't have an explanation for this, that was generous relative to their uh, capacity to take in people was the tiny island of the Dominican Republic, and go figure. Uh, that was the only country to offer generous terms. Chaim Weitzman, who is known for, um, I mean, he was a Russia. We met him yesterday doing terrible things for the Torah world, uh, but he had, he had a sharp wit. Uh, he summarized as follows. This is very quotable. The world seems to be divided into two, two parts. Those places where the Jews could not live and those places where they could not enter. 
that captures it. And again, with justification, Hitler claimed the Evian conference gave him tacit approval for the final solution. Um, <clears throat> In 1939, I mentioned it earlier, the British mandate issued a white paper. Let's get background to the white paper. Um, the Arabs did not like what they saw with the Jews. And under, over their dead bodies was there going to be any Jewish national anything in, the land, in their homeland of the Palestine. That was clearly established in their minds. They had the um, assumption of support of the, of, of, um, of the Arab nations and the Muslim nations around the world. And um, violence worked for them, not just in 1929, but repeated attacks, often on innocent civilians, would be their would be their modus operandi. Then they hit upon a new strategy from 1936, beginning in 1936 and extending for three years all the way into 1939. The Arabs broke out in riots this time against the British. Their riots were directed against the British because they saw it worked. Just like we, we said the mugger's analogy yesterday, um, if you make the ruling power's life miserable by rioting, ultimately they will um, cave into your demands. And indeed, that's what happened. And the best example of caving in was what was called the, the white paper um, that was meant to put down these seemingly interminable Arab riots. Um, and the white paper did a lot of things. It was, it was a harsh decree. And think about the timing, 1939, what we know now in hindsight. Um, it meant that a paltry number of Jews were permitted to enter British Mandate Palestine just at the time that they desperately needed to. Um, a quick survey, starting in 1920, uh, Samuel put a cap. He said no more than 8,000 could arrive annually. Okay. Um, 8,000 is not a large number given the millions in Europe. Um, the peak of Jewish immigration to Palestine would be in 1925, 34,000 somehow through wrangling, through bribery and all other kinds of, uh, uh, other kinds of wrangling, uh, they managed to get 34,000 um, people, Jews into Palestine. Again, a couple peak years, 1933, after the Maccabiah games, I had, we, had, we had a distant cousin who, who came then to uh, to, to participate in the games and then fell in love with Israel and wound up staying from Yugoslavia. Uh, 1939 again, about 30,000 a year, 40,000 a year. So when I say that you know, nobody was coming, th there were people coming relative to the big needs. They weren't large numbers. Uh, there was no place else to go. And from 1939, um, the white paper um, put a ceiling, they said no more than, um, I mean, what, come, what comes out, no more than 75,000 Jews were permitted to come into Palestine um, for the next five years. 75,000, the Jews were desperate, there was no place else to go, the Jews were fleeing to their only home, there were 10 million in Europe. So the British allowed 75,000 in up, uh, before the end of the war. Um, they also, the white paper had a number of other decrees. Um, they, uh, Jews were no longer entitled to buy land from Arabs. Um, I don't know if you know Israeli history, but from 1939, the Jews started a new policy of called, called the Choma Umnigdal, the um, wall and tower strategy. 
Uh, you see remnants of this dotting all over the all over the countryside. Since they were not allowed by British law, by the white paper, to put up new settlements, but there with the new population coming in and the need to, or the feeling that they had to start settling Jews in lots of different places for a, for a future state, because you can't have a land if you don't have people living in, all around the land, populating it. So they, the Homa Umigdal, they would go in the middle of the night and build a makeshift, they were really talented, they could put up a quick wall and tower, stockade tower, and um, the next morning suddenly it became a fact on the ground, and once it was there, the British didn't force them to tear it down. So that's how they, in a clandestine operation, they managed to create all kinds of settlements all over the country, um, <coughs> Homa, Migdal, but um, that's Jewish bravado, that's, but, the, but, the, but the white paper was, um, was a massive blow. Um, it contradicted outright the Balfour Declaration. Uh, it said explicitly that the, um, it is not part of the British government's policy that Palestine should become a Jewish state. Purely, obviously, cowering to the Arab demands and Arab pressures. Um, of course, all of the Zionists in this point, at, this, at this point, the Haganah joined the Irgun and joined the Lehi in fighting the, the white paper fiercely. Uh, they called a general strike. Jews were, of course, now um, very central in the whole operation in Palestine, the functioning of, of Palestine. And when they, the, the strike took place, everything uh, ground to a halt. Um, there were now attacks increasingly on both Arab targets and now British targets by the Jews, especially from the Irgun and the Lehi. Um, in, res in response, the British suspended all Jewish immigration until March of 1940. And again, I, I alert you to pay attention to the dates. Uh, these are calamitous decrees. And again, how many lives could have been saved? Um, there are some who argue that the British were worse than the Nazis. That's an assertion. It's an irrelevant argument to get into. Who knows? Who cares? They were all bad. Esav, Sonas, Yaakov, the, the, the British are a, are part of um, Esav's seeds as every much as Amalek, as much as the Germans are. And um, the British, the British were, were um, despicable to the Jews, and um, the sentiment in, in, in Britain today reflects that till the modern day. Most of the British mainstream media, from the BBC to the Guardian to the to the Economist, and uh, reflect public opinion, which is overwhelmingly anti-Zionist, which is today's today's version of anti-Semitism. Um, and the paradox of the British policy, I want to highlight now for you is shocking. It's, it's, it's mind-boggling, it's beyond what can be believed. Try to stay with me on this because you have to, you just can't fathom this. Think about, think about the following. The British are part of the allies who go to war against the Nazi machine, okay? The Nazis were sworn enemies of the Jews going to war against the Jews. As we said, usually the enemy of, my enemy is my friend. Now, Get this, under Khaj Amin al-Husseini, the Palestinian Arabs were officially allies of the Germans. Alliance of the Germans against the British. Put down the British, destroy the British, Nazi power. That's what the Arabs want. So usually the friend of my, if the enemy of my enemy is not my friend, but at least the friend of my enemy should be my enemy, if you follow that much. So the Arabs were with the Nazis, okay? Um, how much were the 
how much were the uh, Arabs with the, with the Nazis? Um, Hajj Amin, the Grand Mufti, actually tried to overthrow the British in 1941, and he failed, and he fled. He fled to Berlin, and that's where he would collaborate with the Axis powers, with Hitler. There are famous pictures you can see hanging uh, in museums um, of, of Hajj Amin with Hitler shaking hands and being otherwise obsequious. The, um, in contrast, that's the Arabs vis-a-vis -vis the British. They were sworn enemies of the British. The Jews, even though they opposed British policy and sometimes did attack British targets, I'm not saying that we were the best friends of the British, but at the same time, the Jews offered to form a special brigade for Great Britain in their fight with the Nazis. They allied with the British. They identified with the British against the Nazis. The British, in theory, should have been grateful to their Jewish subjects and at war with their betraying Arab subjects. And the opposite was true. Ace of Sonus Yaakov is the only way to explain this. Um, later on in history, Winston Churchill would call the, the white paper, a, the white paper, they called it a base betrayal, the filing of a petition in moral bankruptcy. He condemned the British Empire's attitude here. And there's really no way of justifying it. I mean, the British were, were evil in, 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 their, in their policy and completely inconsistent and, 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 and irrational by their own, by their own standards. Um, the white paper was effectively an act of war against Amer against European Jews, and sealed sealed their fate, giving them nowhere to, to escape. In response to the white paper, the Zionists organized illegal immigration, and very very famously, and you've seen maybe the or you've read Exodus, you've seen the movies about this, but I'm going to talk about maybe some less known stories. They. Um, <clears throat> In fighting, in, in trying to sneak Jews in illegally, um, the British countered. They blockaded Palestine. Um, not only did they they, they put a, 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 they they said no immigration until March of 1940, um, but they actively at war resisted the incoming boats of Jewish refugees. Now you got to picture this too, because the British are quite taxed. They suffered um, immensely in World War II and did not do that well, were it not for their alliance with America, who knows what it would have been, but they were stretched and they, they had to pick and choose which battles to wage. And one of their uh, priority battles was to make sure we're not going to let one of those refugee ships carrying those old women and children into Palestine. You know, all the manpower they, they exerted against the ships, what if they were going fighting the Nazis with that manpower instead? But no, according to British priorities, they had to make sure that none of the refugees got into Palestine. This led to a number of tragedies. Um, there was, in 1939, what's called the Tiger Hill Disaster, in which uh, the British fired on such a refugee ship carrying Jews with no place to go. Um, there were, um, in this instance, four uh, the four refugees were killed. The rest were sent back to the Nazis and to the camps. That was that was the, that was one of the early um, incidents, but it got more tragic. In 1940, um, there was another refugee a ship called the Patria ship that was in that got as far as Haifa Bay uh, with the refugees, and there was a standoff, and nobody knew what to do. And then the Haganah did something that was an accident, but it happens in these kinds of tensions. Um, they set off a bomb that was meant to delay the proceedings and enough so the refugees could actually sneak into to, to Palestine, but the bomb went off and killed 267 of the refugees. 
1941, I mean, these are big numbers. In 1941, um, another refugee boat called the SS Drain was on the way in, and initially the Haganah tried to save the refugees. And then the Haganah made the command decision, they sent the same boat directly to the British. They decided that. And, um, and the British then sent them back to Nazi Germany. And asked to explain, why did you do that? This was now the Zionists were doing this. We're sending the refugees to the British. In war, people do literally insane things. So Moshe Sharet uh, would be a major figure of the Zionist movement. He said, no, 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 we need to curry favor with the, Brit with the British. It's a gesture of camaraderie that we would send the Jews to, um, to the British. Apparently, he saw that the, um, you know, he, and I'm quoting, he says, in whose the, the British in whose hands the creation of Jewish state lies. Um, the closest metaphor I can think of is Migdal Bavel, where the Jews were so dedicated to the cause of building the tower that it's true that if a few bricks would fall down and kill Jews in the process, okay, that was so much collateral damage. But the end goal of creating state was worth, let's say, a few hundred Jewish lives of, on, on refugee boats if that would somehow appease the ruling power of Britain. In 1942, a Soviet torpedo sunk the Struma. Uh, we have family in uh, Ramat Gan whose um, his family were murdered there, and 791 passengers all died. Excuse one, me, one survivor. Uh, one survived. Thank you. I was just going to say, leaving, leaving one lone survivor. Yeah. 791 um, victims. Um, in many other episodes, this is, just, this is just a survey to paint a picture. The British captured, they interned, they put them in their own refugee camps. Uh, some of them, they, they were interned as far off as Mauritius, uh, which is east of Madagascar in the Indian Ocean. They should get nowhere near Palestine, they don't want any trouble. Um, they, the British white paper policy um, was maintained until they left Palestine in May of 1948. They never, they never went back on it. They were so ideologically stubborn and set on their course of motion that it didn't even take the release of the, of the, uh, of the survivors from the concentration camps to soften their hearts uh, and do anything. Um, I, I say this because I'm, I, I perceive, and this is just my sense, just a theory, that there's something mystical and divine in the hatred of the nations of the Jews. It doesn't make sense otherwise. I mean, okay, so you could say the British are annoyed by the Jews and they hate us, but their hatred is so extreme. Their policies are so um, uh, uh, um, are, are so self-defeating, uh, right? I mean, they, they should have helped their own natural ally as, as, as it seems the only way to understand it is somehow this comes from a Kaddish Baruch it, today, as we said, British is one, the, Brit, the Brits are among the harshest criti critics of Israel, um, and they criticize the Jews, and this is where the irony comes full circle, they often criticize Jewish policies that were in fact the standard policies of British Mandate Palestine when they ruled this part of the world. <coughs> so that they had no compunction, they didn't hesitate to demolish Jewish homes and Arab homes when they ruled here, and the same power routinely in the pages of the BBC and, and, and the Economist will, will condemn Israel for doing, for not even, um, not even uh, destroying the Arabs' home, with, with, which the Jews do in response to the terrorist attack, but not otherwise. They condemn Israel, the Jews, for building homes. <coughs> um, 
the British didn't hesitate to use artillery Art, art, artillery, uh, artillery um, against civilian population centers um, during the 1936. Anybody been to Jaffa? Jaffa? You've been in the, the Central Mountain, which is very beautiful, beautiful and scenic and touristy today. You walk around this like this mountain area with a path, right? Why is it like that? That was the center of ancient archaeological, the archaeological tell of ancient biblical Jaffa. That the British simply came with their bulldozers, their steamrollers, and flattened in response to the 1936 to 1939 riots and, uh, and murdered, murdered the, the Arab civilians. So the British used their strong arm tactics, uh, but somehow that was okay. And when the Jews do it, um, they're condemned as, um, uh, the, yeah, the terminology is extreme, as not Nazi occupiers. Um, okay, that's the scene that unfolds. Um, tomorrow, we're not gonna actually get to the show up. We're gonna do, we're gonna do a precursor to the show up. Um, but let's not end on a bitter note. Uh, let's talk about a guddle, because that'll put us in a better mood. Um, we'll talk about a figure that's very interesting, very interesting life. His name is Ravisser Zalman Meltzer, and he's a, he's, he's a guddle and also a connective tissue, based on who he learned by and then who his students were. So if you are at least mentally making one of these maps, trying to see the, the thread of tradition as it goes from Rebbe to Talmud to Talmud to Talmud, uh, you can very much trace it through Avisar Zalman Meltzer. Um, he, by the way, has a great commentary on the... Of course. Mission toward the Rambam called Evan HaEzel. He had learned in Mir uh, and Volozhin. His rebbe's included the Nitziv of Chaim Brisker. He also learned with the Chofetz Chaim and he learned with the Altar of Slobodka. So how's that for pedigree? Pretty strong. Um, he was initially part of the Chovavet Sion, part of a chapter called the Nest Siona Society. He and his brother-in-law, Rav Moshe Mordechai Epstein, one of the Rosh Yeshiva in Hebron, right in, in, in the Yeshiva, the Slovakia Yeshiva, um, they actually purchased an orchard of Esrogim up in Chedera as a part of the initial step in founding the Mosheva called Chedera, which was, if you ever, has anybody been to Chedera and been to the museum there? Was that? It was entirely today. There's um, there's a religious population, mostly Dati, but not not not, not much more. Um, but that was one of the more tragic stories. They were beset, like many of the Moshevot, with malaria, and many of them were wiped out in the end. And terrible, terrible tragedies took place there. Anyway, Ravizuzan Meltzer and his brother-in-law of Moshe Mordechai Epstein were involved in helping launch the community, and they had an Esrog orchard there. They were proud of it. Coming back, I mean. The idealism is unmistakable. We're coming back to Eretz Kodesh. We're going to we're going to work for mitzvahs, and the first thing they're going to plant is an esrog, so the Jews should have the Dalad Minim. Uh, he was a major Rosh Hashiva for years, but when he became the Rav of Slutsk, the um, remember we talked about in Europe the oppression uh, was so so extreme. Um, the authorities insisted that he have a document proving that he was a rabbi, but he, like so many great rabbis, had no smicha. He had nothing. Um, like the Chofetz Chaim we saw. So he received a quickie smicha from Rav Chaim Brisker and also the Aruch HaShulchan. They sent it by telegram. Rav Chaim wired over, Yore, Yore, Yodin, Yodin, which is the, the Talmudic terms for smicha. Um, Rav Chaim, Rav Zalman Meltzer, uh, actually escaped the Bolsheviks in the 1920s and he made it to Eretz 
Eretz Yisrael to Palestine. Uh, he would become the Rosh Yeshiva in a great Ashkenazi Yeshiva. Um, today, it's lo it was located it, right near the Shuk on Jaffa Street called the Eitz Chaim Yeshiva. It's, it's currently going reno undergoing renovations. Uh, it doesn't quite exist anymore, but there are all kinds of plans what's going to be with the building and maybe uh, eventually Yeshiva. Um, but here's the connective tissue. Again, you got Rav Chaim Brisker, the Nitziv, the Chavetz Chaim. His um, son-in-law was Rav Aaron Cutler, who'd be the founder, we stood by his kever uh, not many weeks ago, and um, he would go off to found Lakewood Yeshiva and um, do great things with his life. His students, among his students were Rav Shach, Rav Shlomo Zaman Orbach, uh, Rav Yosef Eliyahu and Henkin, and many, many others. Um, Great figure. Um, tomorrow we, among others, get to meet the Chazon Ish and um, and uh, and Rav Elchanan Wasserman and Rav Mir Shapiro, the founder of the Dafyomi. And uh, more on that later. Okay. Have a good day. And I